0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode. This week, we read the Perashah Re'eh. The Perashah begins, Re'eh, Anochi, hayom. See, I place before you today. The Zohar Kadosh calls the Yom Tov of Rosh Hashanah Hayom, and tells us whenever we see Hayom, we should think of Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, it's possible to translate this Parasha, the opening line, as saying, uh, we begin, uh, I'm giving you in the days before Rosh Hashanah, I'm giving you this time to prepare yourselves before the Day of Judgment on Rosh Hashanah. And this year, 5782, uh, we begin the month of Elul, the time of preparation on uh, in this, uh, this weekend. We have, uh, Rosh, we have Rosh Chodesh uh, Shabbat and Sunday And therefore it's really a time to begin uh, Last night uh, we, were, we were talking and one of the rabbis suggested that As we begin Elul we should focus on Musa and how a person can improve themselves On, uh, on uh, uh, Shabbat afternoon, the late Shabbat afternoon for Seudah Shalishi We gave a class with this thought in mind, and uh, it was requested that we try to re-record it. It's always difficult to re-record, especially when you give a class on Shabbat, there's this higher level of Kiddushah. Also, (coughs) you have the back and forth with a very familiar kahal, and it makes it a a lot easier to be able to give the class. But we're going to give it a best shot, because I think that we can see in here, this Perashah of Re'eh, and we can see how it relates to this level of personal growth. So my wife has a cousin. His name is Lloyd. He's my dentist. I actually saw him this week. And uh, if he wasn't a dentist, he might have been the borscht. Uh, um, he might have been a borscht belt comedian. He really is the king of one-liners, especially when he gets to play with his uh, his Yiddish. He has an office on Fifth Avenue in the 70s, and typical large dental office, but then he has one room set off to the corner. I found that room once when I had to use the restroom, and someone was in the office restroom. He told me to go through that door, which I thought was a closet. In there, there's a small, uh, looks like a small studio uh, apartment. There's a pull-out sofa, a little table with chairs, and there's a regular bathroom with a shower. So I, I asked him what it was before. He says, you know, when he was younger, he used to sleep in the city. When he worked late, uh, so he, he had that to be able to, to crash there, uh, especially before he was married. And uh, He also said that when he had friends come from out of town, they always would ask him for a place to crash, and that's where they usually crashed. There was one of his friends who crashed there the most, was a comedian who was uh, going back and forth between New York and L.A., and he was really struggling at the time. And uh, his name was Larry David. So yeah, that Larry David, the pre-Seinfeld Larry David. So many of us uh, grew up as fans of Seinfeld. Uh, His mom was from the community. He was brought up in a Jewish home in Long Island. So we could relate to a lot that, uh, that Seinfeld offers. And a lot of that comes from Larry David. And then Larry David went after Seinfeld was finished and he made his crazy show on HBO. And his value system often seems uh, misanthropic, it's cynical, it's counters society's conventions. But really strange enough, Larry David taught us more about how to live in this world than many of the teachers we've had in life. So there's one particular lesson that comes from an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which was called The Survivor. In that show, uh, Larry's dad has a friend who's a Holocaust survivor. He was in the camps and and, and he... uh, He survived and he lives with them. He lives in L.A. now. And at dinner that night, they brought a guy. His name was Colby Donaldson. He was a cast member of a TV show called The Survivor. The Survivor was a a show where people got stuck on an island, were put on an island, and they see who can uh, handle it the best. Now, this guy, this cast member is arguing. He has the chutzpah to argue that he's the real survivor because of the challenges of the show. And I think the shock value is obvious, but there's a tremendous lesson at the very end of the show. The Holocaust survivor becomes so flustered that he knocks a bowl of gravy onto Larry's shirt. So someone at dinner yells out, somebody get a sponge. And Larry in typical fashion counters, I don't understand, why don't you get a sponge? And I think that's an important lesson is, is, is recognizing a problem. You can suggest the potential solution, but sometimes we, not, we need uh, to not only identify the inefficiencies, but we need to take the initiative by finding a workable solution. People who take the initiative figure out how to do things on their own. We read every day in this Shema. We say, uh, these are the words, Asher Anochi Metzavecha Hayom. Which I am commanding you today, and we are commanding you on an individual basis. You, hayom, today, and like we say, today is every day. But also, we saw the the idea that today could be Yom Kippur. We also saw in last week's parashah that the beginning of the parashah talks to us about uh, we we see kolamitzvah, asher tishmerun la'asot, all the mitzvah, which we're talking about the whole Torah, that I'm commanding you individually, then tishmerun in plural. So the rabbis explain that what's going on here, that a person has to realize, and he has to sometimes think, I have to imagine that I am the only guy in the entire world who can do this today. And it's on me. Because sometimes people will think, you know, there's other mitzvot, I'll do one of the other ones. Or there's other people. They'll take care of this mitzvah. So what we have to think, I'm commanding you, all of this I'm commanding you, all 613, you have to take the responsibility. You have to do it. You can't try to pass it along to someone else. You know, someone get a sponge? No. Why don't you get up and get the sponge? A person has to be able to get the sponge. But I want to take this idea to a higher level and see how... Sometimes when we, we do things, we do things in order to set an example for other people to do it. So we see, See, I'm placing before you a bracha and a klala. The bracha, when you will listen. When you're going to listen to the mitzvot of Hashem, your God. Asher Anochi Metzaveh Hayom Which I'm commanding you today. The rabbis ask a question on this strange uh, verb. It's saying that you will hear. You would imagine that, you know, the blessing is going to come to someone who does. The curse is going to come to someone who doesn't. Why is it related to this word, here? Here, Dora Hayim HaKadosh tells us something very interesting. He says, listening to Hashem's commandments is perceived as a pleasurable experience by, it, by itself. Just the hearing, it helps the neshama, the soul, to feel alive. Uh, Yeshayahu writes, He says, listen and your souls are going to come alive. He says, whenever someone who studies Torah gains an understanding of what the Torah has in mind, he experiences a physical and spiritual sense of well-being. He owes Hashem a debt of gratitude for affording him such pleasure. Moshe Rabbeinu means that anyone who prevents himself from listening to the voice of Hashem, already he's cursed. Because there's a tremendous idea just in this point of listening. There's a concept that we have called selective hearing. What is that? It's the ability to listen to a single speaker while in a crowded or loud environment. Some people call it selective auditory attention. Other people call it the cocktail party effect. So I remember there's a scene from Superman when he realizes he had the super hearing. He hears all these voices, these noises from all over the world and it's deafening. What does he do? Superman has to learn to filter what he hears. His brain ignores automatically useless or reluctant information. It only relax, reacts to the things that he has to react to. Here's a gunshot, a car sliding, someone screaming for help. And then when he wants to, he can focus on the smallest sound, even a heartbeat in a person. In real life, all of us, our brains filter as well. You know, even think of it, our our eyes filter, our ears filter. You know, if, if our eyes didn't filter, we would be staring at our nose all day. And all of us have been in a situation. You're on a crowded bus, you're in a train, you're in a place, a party or something, and there's a lot of noise and you're trying to talk to someone. So in a way, you're able to filter out the sounds while play, while you pay close attention to the person you're trying to speak with. And you really don't even realize what you're doing. It, it comes, so to say, naturally. And we could say that this is definitely a gift from Hashem. This is this natural ability programmed into us that we take for granted. Now, on any given day, you could imagine you have lots of conversations with people at the end of the day do you remember those conversations do you remember them verbatim how much do you remember the conversations how closely are you listening rabbi avitan always talked about active listening and and you know he would joke that although uh, when it, that, that, you know that's a problem when it goes in one year it goes out the other year he says at least when it comes to torah don't worry if you come to a class you fall asleep he would tell you to still come to the class because if it goes in one year out the other year he says something sticks he says, but the reality is that we have to have some form of selective listening, selective vision in order not to go crazy. But sometimes we drown out what we what we shouldn't be drowning out. I saw in a child psychology magazine it's, it had an article on uh, speaking to children and it asked, it says, uh, when when you when you speak to your kids and you say ice cream, they suddenly wake up. When you say other things, you're completely it's, it's as if you're not in the room. So a person responds to something that's important to them. It has nothing to do with the actual hearing. It happens because the brain prioritizes certain sounds. Children learn to tune out like we all learn to tune out. The Navi Ishayahu writes, Hashmen lev ha'am hazeh. The heart of this people has become fat. Ve'oznav uh, hatved their ears have become heavy. the Hasha, and their eyes have become plastered, sealed. Pen, perhaps, why, why? Pen, your now yishma, they're going to see with their eyes, they're going to hear with their ears, and their heart will understand, and they're going to have to return, and they will be cured. So the bottom line is, if they really listen, then they have to do something about it. I remember I had a guy working for me, and he was a genius. He was hired as my assistant, and the guy, everything I asked him to do, he couldn't figure it out, he couldn't understand, it was too hard, until I would do the thing on my own. I, I would say that, that he, he was a genius because he would feign that he couldn't understand, and he knew that I would get frustrated, and I would do what I usually do, is say, okay, forget it, I'll do it myself, because I was worried he would either get it wrong or it would take me too long to explain it to him again and again. That's a bad thing. I didn't teach the guy what I should have taught the guy. But he knew how to feign not hearing, not understanding. The same point I saw, I remember when I was a kid, when Rabbi Noah Weinberg first came to deal. And I remember when he had a conversation with my son, uh, when my son was young. And uh, he said to us, he said that one of the reasons that people turn off and don't listen is because if they did, if they really heard it, they might like it. And if they liked it, it would require them to do an act, to change something in their lives. So by turning off, by not hearing, they wouldn't have to face that threat. Each of us could know so much, but we reject listening and seeing and understanding in order to avoid an action we don't want to take. A lot of times, you know, it says see. You have to go beyond seeing. You have to be able to see, You come into the house. And, you know, a kid comes in and says, Ma, what's for dinner? Sits down and eats and doesn't realize what it took for his mother to prepare dinner all the time to cut the vegetables, to prepare everything. And then the pots get cleaned and the table gets cleaned. And we just grab the food and go. There's, there's not a focus. And it's really because our brains focus on what they want to focus. And this is the problem. We have to, we have to connect our hearing in a way that our hearing enters more than, than just in the ear, out the ear. It has to enter our heart. So I remember, and, and this idea of our brain can only focus on so much, and it makes, uh, it makes a, uh, a big difference. I remember about 15 years ago, I came home one Friday, and, and uh, I forgot the dog's name. We have a little dog. We always, My wife always has a little dog. It's her dog. And I forgot the dog's name. And I thought about the dog's name Friday night, Shabbat. I couldn't remember the dog's name. I said, how can I not remember the dog's name? The dog's in the house for years. How do I not remember the name? And then on Monday, I sent a note to one of the guys in the factory asking them about some bar stools that I had in the house that they were going to refinish for me. And they asked me to send a picture. I sent a picture. And the next day they said, David, what are you talking about? The picture you sent was bar stools you had 10 years ago. The bar stools you have now are different bar stools. These are the bar stools you have, and I got very worried. I didn't remember the dog's name. I didn't remember what bar stools I have, and that I should remember because that's my business. And I and I said, "Oh boy," you know. I start I started realizing, you know, I keep forgetting people's names. I keep forgetting things that I always could remember. Someone would tell me a telephone number when I was a kid. I could remember the telephone number. I could remember twenty telephone numbers without a problem. I can quote you back a page in a book word for word without a problem. And all of a sudden now, my brain is not working. So panic sets in. You imagine the worst. And I call my friend, my doctor. Mayor Apten. I say, listen, this is going on. I explain it to him. He gets another guy on the phone. He turns out to be the head of neurology at Mount Sinai. And he tells me, you know what? I come in later in the week. I come in early Thursday morning. And he puts me through a battery of tests, uh, going through these numbers tests and word games and Everything trying to test the memory, also physical tests, you know you walk the plank and you do these different things. And at the end of the day, he sat me down and he said, "Listen, you spend so much time in work. You spend so much time with your family. you spend so much time being a rabbi. you spend so much time working for the community. And he went over my daily schedule from wake up and my tasks and my responsibility. and he said, "Listen, if this is the decision you make, you don't have to worry. Your brain can only hold so much." So if you want to remember the dog's name or which bar schools you have or people's names or things that you're forgetting, then you're going to have to cut out a chunk of responsibility in your life because your brain has to make a decision and could only hold certain things. Maybe it's inconvenient not to remember a phone number, but that's really your brain saying, listen, I have to focus on what I can focus. There's only so much I can do. So the question is, how do we get our brains and the brains of people that we want to talk to and we want to listen to us how do we get those people's brains to focus on what we're saying? You know, I walk into the office one day, and I'm carrying a whole bunch of boxes, and everyone's looking at me. Now, if my son was there, my son Jonah, every time I walk in, he gets up. So he would have run to help me. But everyone was looking like, okay, he could handle the boxes. And I, and I finally yell, help. And it's frustrating. Like, why wouldn't someone say, hey, he's carrying four or five boxes. Let me get up and try to help him. And, and th- that's the issue. People didn't even see it. We have a pasuk that says, "Hatu o'snichem. lend your ears, uchu elai, and come to me. Shimu, listen, utechini nafshechem, and your uh, your souls will live." The Malbim says, "Lishmoa, tevarai, to hear my words, ve'achad kach, and after that, shimu, hear, ve'heminu, and understand, ve'kiblu, and receive, tevarai, my words, ubazetechini nafshechem." So really, what it has to do, and the Ramban explains it, he says that words need to penetrate a person's heart. We talk about words from the heart. And the problem is that if it doesn't penetrate your heart, you really didn't hear it. So there are different steps that we can get for, for us to be able to communicate with others help us to communicate with others, and then we can think about those things when we want to actively listen to others. So the the first thing is interesting. The first step really is that when we have something on our minds, we have to be able to say it. Too many times we imagine, you know, uh, one of my kids would come back and tell us this whole story that happened, and the story only happened in her mind. She never really said the things she wanted to say. She would have liked to say them, but she was not going to say them. And uh, we have to be able to say the things we need to say. In her case, uh, probably not because it happened in college and uh, I don't think the professors would have been too kindly. But, uh, but because of the, the animosity they have towards us. But, uh, but really we have to know that, that we can't just say it in our minds, we have to say it in words. Step two is crucial. We have to obtain the other person's attention before talking. We could say their name, a gentle touch. We have to establish eye contact. All these are good ways to make sure the brain is ready to receive the information you want to provide. And the same way, if someone is talking to us, we have to focus on them. We have to look at them. We have to open our brain to all to make sure we we hear them. When we're talking to someone, especially in this day and age, everyone walking around with their earbuds, uh, their AirPods, you have to make sure they're out or they're off. You have to make sure the... the the TV or the radio or the music is muted you have to make sure the phone and the computer are not being used when you're trying to have a conversation so step three is you have to make it short so we have to remember that today especially attention spans are very very long you know I I remember someone saying you know they want to say to the kids I want you to go upstairs I want you to get yellow pajamas I want you to put other pajamas on and I want you not to forget to take your clothes and put the dirty clothes in the hamper Now, that's all good, because you really want to be specific. But sometimes it's easier to say the kids, pajamas, and they know exactly what you mean. But we have to make sure we say everything clearly. We have to make sure that we say to the person exactly what we want them to do. Sometimes we could say, help. And help is not specific. Help, they'll say, oh, I helped. But help, I have to be specific and say, this is what I need you to do. I have to be clear. I have to be specific. We need to be very specific when we ask people to do things. We can't be embarrassed to be specific when we ask people. uh, We can't be embarrassed from being specific. So Shlomo HaMelech explains in Kohelet: more than the wisdom of the book of Kohelet is the ability to get people to hear it. Give through parables, through stories. So, like we said, the first step is to say it. The second step is to get their attention. The third step is to say it clearly, and the fourth step is to make sure they understand what you are saying. Sometimes you have to get them to repeat it back in order to make sure they heard it. And you, you, it's crucial to do that. And the fifth step is, is, is one thing that I think is, is especially crucial, is you have to set an example. You, give, you have to model good listening. You have to give your undivided attention to others. But you also have to sometimes set an example about what it's necessary to do. So I heard a wonderful story from Rabbi Zechariah Wallerstein And he tells tells about a certain scholar who was coming to the city of Strasbourg in France for Shabbat And uh, the scholar arrives late on Friday afternoon And he discovers that the people who he was supposed to stay by Have left the city for the weekend and basically left him high and dry What is he going to do? They're not home, the house is locked, where is he going to go? He doesn't know anyone there, so with no other choice, he takes his, uh, his little valise, he goes to the synagogue, he figures, okay, I'll leave it in the room, and we'll make the best of it. So he's there for Friday evening, he's there for Menchah, he's there for Arbit, and at the end of Arbit, a man walks over to him and says, you know, do you have a place to eat for Shabbat? And he says, you know, I really appreciate you asking me, because uh, I, I actually had plans, I was supposed to stay with certain people, but they weren't home. The man says, don't worry, it's fine, come with me, come to my house, you could be our guest. So he comes to the house and he sees the table is set for 11 people. The man has him, his wife, there's eight kids, that's 10. He wonders, who's the 11th? Is there someone who was invited? Are they going to set another plate for him? And then they say, no, no, sit there, that's for you, that's your seat. So he joins them for dinner. A few months later, he has to come back to Strasbourg. And he, he calls them in advance. He says, would it be okay if I stay by you? They say, yeah, no problem. We enjoyed having you the last time. Please come and stay. So he again comes. He comes back from Friday night dinner, and he sees on the table there's 12 seats. That's the, the 10 for the family, one for him. And he gets one more. There must be a guest coming, but no guest comes. So he turns to the, one of the sons who's sitting next to him. He says, I understand. You always set an extra seat for a guest just in case. And the boy said, yes, every Friday night, my dad, when my mom is lighting the candles, he makes a tefillah and he says, please Hashem, we want to fulfill the mitzvah on Shabbat of hachnassat orchim. Please send us a guest so that we can have them with us for Shabbat. And we all hear him and we all are involved in setting the table to make sure. And when our dad comes home, we're always excited to see if he has a guest with him. And he says, so you get guests often in the house? And the boy says, Rabbi, we live in Strasbourg. Ain't nobody come to Strasbourg. We rarely get guests. So the rabbi doesn't understand. He turns to the to the owner of the house and he says to him, I understand if you rarely get guests, why don't you just, if you get the guest, then just quickly set another table, set another, uh, another plate on the table for the guest when he comes home. And the host explained to the rabbi, he says, no, rabbi, we have two reasons we do this. One is so that the children see that we're praying for the guests, that it's a very important thing, so they're involved in setting the table, so there's anticipation of maybe a guest is going to come. And they know it would be a beautiful thing if the guests are going to come. And therefore, when they're going to be older, and they're going to be in their own houses, they're going to appreciate having guests. And so the rabbi is, what's the second reason? He says, that's for the guest." He says, if we only set the table with 10 people... And uh, then the guest comes and we set another another place, then the guest might think, you know, do they have enough food for me? Do they prepare for me? Maybe they only prepared for the 10. Maybe I'm messing things up. But if they see and they come into the house and they see there's already a plate and everything prepared for the extra person, they know that th- that the, the whole dinner was prepared with them in mind. So we, 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 we see that how crucial it is to set an example of what's important, because you know, Rabbi Abitan always told us: kids don't do what you hear what they hear; they do what they see you do. And it's crucial that they that they see you do it. You know, we often hear the guy who's uh, the you know the father of the house, right? The master of the house, right? He comes home and he says, you know, listen, I'm I'm paying for everything. I'm doing everything. Everyone else should take care of everything else. Says, But the rabbi really would say No, you can't do that You have to get up, you have to show that you're participating That motivates them to do the same And this is the same whether it's at home Whether it's at work with an employee Or whether it's in the synagogue How many times, you know, we, we all would see Our rabbi, our rabbi, how many times could I tell you That he, he stopped to pick up a piece of paper Or something on the floor You know, and, and he there was there was never ego He would always say that Sacrifice the ego, life's going to be better There's a leadership paper called The Decisiveness of Small Unit Leadership on the Golan Heights in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. It was written by major Oakland McCulloch. And he talks about the first 48 to 72 hours of the war. And Israel is attacked. And it was going to take time for the reservists to come up and to, uh, to, to join. So now you have a small band of the guys who were there on Yom Kippur. And these guys are going to have to hold off armies that are attacking them. And what it says, it says that this is one of the most remarkable feats in modern military history. And then it wraps it up and it looks at the leadership traits and characteristics of the uh, IDF officers. So he wraps up this, uh, this paper with what he calls the seven principles of leadership of the Israeli army. And these seven principles that the Israeli army practices are definitely things that we have to learn. It's lead from the front. Lead from the front. In most armies, the the leader stays behind and sends everyone in front while he watches. In the Israeli army, leadership is based on a personal example. And I think this is the most important, the single most important thing that we can know as, uh, as parents, as leaders, as rabbis, as anyone, you have to be able to lead from the front. You have to be willing to show that you're not afraid to do what needs to be done. The rest of the, the points, I'll, I'll list them because they could definitely be helpful. Careful planning and the dissemination of the purpose of the plan to all levels. So even when we're going into, into uh, say, Shabbat, we have Shabbat is coming. So we can say, okay, everybody, let's get together. Shabbat is coming. Here's the plan you're going to do this you're going to do that you're going to do this full delegation to all subordinates you're going to delegate to everyone this is your job this is your job this is your job and if you have to improvise you improvise we we uh concentrate forces on the objective all of us are here together this is a shared a shared uh shared goal uh there's surprise and mobility which doesn't really play a role I don't think and there's an ideological motivation of the troops, you know. There, this is for our country. This is our lives, you know. If they win, we pushed into the sea. There is no losing. The same way, we're we're there for Hashem. We're there. We have a higher motivation in everything that we do. There's the mitzvah involved. There's the whole sake of the world. There's, this is what Hashem wants from us. He wants us to emulate Him and His Chesed. So the people are going to listen because we're 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 there and we have this higher higher calling, and we have a reason to do it. We have to remember that leadership transcends its environment. Good leaders are good leaders, whether they're on the battlefield, when they're in a boardroom, whether they have a small company, whether they're in a committee meeting with other people trying to do a chesed, whether they're home with their kids. Born leaders, uh, we're not really born as leaders, but we have to apply the principles, and we have to... We have to we have to make ourselves better. Rabbi Joey Haber he says something very interesting. He says we can learn something on this from the Evet Ivri. We have an Evid Ivri, a servant who has to be sold to pay his debts, and then what happens after six years? He's supposed to be freed. But then he comes, he says, No, I love my master, I love my life here. And you take that guy and you pierce his ear You pierce his ear, what does Rashi say? The ear who heard But did he, he heard what? That you're a servant of Hashem But where does it say that you shouldn't be a servant to someone else? In fact, we have the laws of Ebed Ivri But the reality is if we're going to serve Hashem Our obligation is to listen, to focus, to hear what Hashem wants us to do We have to train those around us Train ourselves and those around us how to notice, how to participate. And Rabbi Heber said something very interesting. He says we can raise very nice but selfish children. And I think as a grandparent, it's you're the most uh, liable because we tend to be afraid of disciplining. We, we tend to be afraid of that. So we give and give and give, but we don't expect, and we have to be able to raise children and grandchildren where they have tremendous midot. But they're not selfish We are raising Rabbi Haber says Nice selfish people They say please They say thank you They smile But no one took the time To train them To really hear Make them realize They're a part And if we don't do it With the kids They're going to become Nice selfish adults Shalom HaMelech He asks Hashem To please give him A heart that hears and the rabbi say, "What do you mean a heart that hears? You would think an ear that hears." But Shalom Hamilch is again repeating what we've been saying: that the words have to enter the heart. Like the rabbi said, words that come from the heart enter the heart. And this is relevant to everybody. So I want to close with a story that uh, Rabbi Haber told, and he tells it, and it's it's really shows you how a person can can hear, can hear more. Than words he says there was a young man in the community. He was 18, 19 years old. he became sick. Rahman and he had chemo. The chemo was, was very hard, and it affects your immune system. He was scheduled to have major surgery, and the rabbi actually told the story the day before the surgery, and he said, "How beautiful Ami Yisrael are." He said, this family from Brooklyn would go every year for the summer. They would take a summer, rent a house in Lakewood, and they would have the summer in, in, the, you know, in the country, so to say. He says, but this year the doctor said, listen, it's better for you not to go, not you to be with other people. You have to really isolate. You have to stay home. You can't go. And one day the boy went to be with his friends, and the doctor got very angry and said, you put yourself in a very dangerous position because your your, your immune system, you can catch something, and, and something terrible could happen. But what did the doctor do? Unbelievable. Who does this as a doctor? The doctor got in contact with High Lifeline. And Life Lifeline was able to arrange with someone who had a house in Jackson. Jackson is right near uh, Lakewood. And he had a giant house with a giant swimming pool and a tennis court. And everything was there in this house. And the man was going to be away with his family for the summer. So he was willing to, they got him to lend the house to this family for a week so that this boy could come and be with his family, but they were somewhat isolated, but they could still have a beautiful time in the summer. A few nights into the the week, the homeowner calls the people and he says, listen, can you do me a favor? I need to come by the house with my kids uh, to do something. So he said, yeah, of course, it's your house. Please come, don't worry. All of a sudden the man comes and he has behind him a van And in the van, there's a caterer, and there's barbecue with a giant barbecue, and there's meat, and there's everything, and they start setting up everything in the backyard. And they're going to make a party with a barbecue for this family to bring them some simcha going through this difficult time. A half hour later, another van shows up, and there's a band. And the band starts to play music. And the music is there so that they all should have a good time, a private concert just for this boy and his family. And then at midnight, Yaakov Shweki shows up. And Yaakov Shweki sings and does his private concert from 12 to 1.30. And if you think, do you know what Yaakov Shweki would cost? I don't know if he charged, but do you know what he would cost? And then the family returned to Brooklyn. Then earlier in the week... So remember, he's telling the story the day before the surgery. So a couple of days before, this man from Lakewood, from Jackson, comes to this family's house in Brooklyn, and he has with him 15 men. And they come and they sing and dance to try to give the boy chizuk that he's going to be able to go through this this surgery. And one of the men says to the boy, he said, You know, my son was diagnosed, and... Uh, and, uh, and, and he was able to, to come through this. And therefore, I'm here to be with you and to tell you that you can come through this. Another one said, my son was also diagnosed to the point where the doctors told us that he only had a few days to live. And he said, and I went into a corner and I turned to Hashem and I said, Hashem, I want to thank you so much for each and every day you gave me with my child. It was precious. It was precious like a jewel. And I appreciate everything And if you can give him more, I appreciate it. But I'm not going to blame you. And I'm going to thank you for everything you gave us. He said the doctor was listening. And the doctor said he, he couldn't believe what he heard. And he said there was an experimental surgery that he was reluctant to try. But he said, you know what? Let's do it. And the man said that his son was still alive and well. He says, these people have a lev lishma, a heart that hears. Too many of us don't have a heart that hears. Some do. We make a barbecue, bring a brand, Yako short. look at that. To give the guy Chizuk. What is that? The guy heard there was someone sick. Okay, he should feel better. he'll feel better. No, he didn't want to do that. He says, I could be that guy who says, let me just do it myself. Or I could be the guy, the teacher, who sets an example, who speaks up, who clearly explains who make sure that those words enter the heart. And that will assure me that all those are around me, my children, my grandchildren, my employees, my colleagues, they're not only polite, but they're not selfish and they're not self-consumed. And this will help us. We really have to learn how to deal with this idea of selective hearing. See, see with more than your eyes. The blessing, when you will listen. Make sure you listen and it enters your heart. We're coming to the period of Elul. We have 30 days. Hashem is for me. I, I, am, I, I am for my beloved. My beloved is for me. Hashem is with me. Hashem is coming into the, into the, the garden. He's taking us for a walk. He's holding our hand. Hashem is there with us to connect to us But we have to be the best that we can be We have to take personal responsibility You know, someone get a sponge Why don't you get the sponge? We have to be willing to do it Because when we get the sponge Our kids see that it's important to get the sponge It's important to do And we have to be able to also communicate in a way Where our kids, we say what we need to say We don't just think it we get their attention. We make sure they're focused on us. We make sure they put away what they were doing. We get the music things out of their ears. They hear us. They see us. They connect us. We have to make sure that the message is clear in a way that it could be understood, and then we have to make sure the message is understood. And we always have to remember that everything we expect of others, we have to first expect from ourselves. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Everybody have a great week. Satish and we'll see you next week.